Josh Summers, and you are listening to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to take a look at a full-spectrum spirituality. And by that I mean a really an integral spirituality, and a spirituality that includes our body, our energy, our psycho-emotional life, and our awareness, or the awareness that's cultivated in, in various kinds of meditation. Today's episode of the, of the podcast is a Dharma talk that I gave last Monday, looking at what I'm defining as the continuum of practice, where at the beginning of this continuum, we often start out in our life or our practice life with a sense that there's something fundamentally wrong about the way things are going, the way our life is unfolding. There's a fundamental wrongness that could be very mild and subtle, and it can be very acute and, and, and quite intense. But whatever that fundamental wrongness is, we, we engage with spiritual technology, yoga, postures, breath work, meditation. And over the course of a developed practice, our experience of that fundamental wrongness often, particularly with states of or experiences of awakening and realization, that fundamental wrongness shifts to an experience of unconditional rightness. And that's what I try to get into in today's talk. But before I give you that talk, I want to give a shout out and a big thank you to all the members of the Sangha, the online practice community that Terry and I formed uh, last fall at the beginning of September 2020. Um, and I'm, I'm giving you this shout out because this podcast is free and um, really the only financial support that we receive is through uh, memberships in the Sangha that, of people that practice with us. So th- this was a decision I made. I didn't want to open a Patreon account and, and, and kind of uh, encourage people to support the podcast through Patreon, which would involve me sort of managing a whole second external site off of my website. Um, I wanted to try to keep things simple and keep it all under one roof on joshsummers.net. Um, and so uh, even if you can't attend some of the live classes that we offer, um, those classes are available in, in an unlimited manner, meaning lifetime access, those classes are available in our library. So uh, whether you're able to attend lives to, to the, some of the live sessions or you want to practice along with the recordings from the library, our intention is to offer four interrelated classes per week, really an integral practice, an integral practice of mind, body, and energy um, to support your ongoing development and transformation on the path. So if you'd like to support the podcast, one way to do that is to become a member of the Sangha. That's our online weekly studio of classes. And you can do that by going to joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha or check out a link in the show notes where you'll you'll find a, a way to find out more information about all the specifics of the Sangha and what that involves. But please consider that. And if you're not interested in joining the Sangha, which I understand, maybe you got other stuff going on, um, the other thing I want to let you know about is I've, I've recently changed the tone and tenor of my newsletter. For several years now, my, my newsletter has been sort of a marketing, a, a, a traditional garden variety marketing device where I might send out a short reflection on something, but there's often that, that short reflection is laden with a lot of events and upcoming workshops and and uh, just other stuff that I'm trying to get you to get interested in because it it, um, it benefits my financial bottom line. Um, but during the pandemic, um, as the nature of and, and sort of direction of my work has shifted, um, I, I really wanted to to, to sh- change the feel of the of the, the newsletter and really get all the marketing junk out of it. So now I've re branded the newsletter, if you will, and I'm calling it Letters from the Path. And what I'll be sending out now as a letter from the path is once or twice a month, I'll be writing a a letter to you as though you were a good spiritual friend of mine, where I reflect on one of these themes that I just mentioned, something about the, to do with the body, the energy, the psycho-emotional being, or something to do with the Dharma and our uh, nature of consciousness or mind. Um, you can think of these letters from the path as the written analog to the podcast. They, they, they will parallel and kind of reflect and, and echo things in the podcast, but also uh, probably pursue and develop 
um, and explore other themes that I, I don't necessarily speak about or get into on the podcast. So um, I invite you to uh, consider subscribing to that. As I said to the people on the list already, if you're worried about being inundated with lots and lots of letters from me in your inbox, don't worry too much. I'll be publishing those roughly at about a once or twice a month basis. Um, and, and if you're still sort of resistant and don't want to be receiving letters from me, those letters, if you're interested in them, will be available as blogs published on my site too. So I, I just want to mention all that. I know some of you have wanted to or have asked how you can support the podcast. I don't have a Patreon account, as I said, but um, you can support me and the podcast by either joining the Sangha that Terry and I run on a weekly basis or by subscribing to letters from my Letters from the Path. Okay, uh, with that all said, thank you for listening today. I hope today's talk clarifies some things about the path and nourishes your own practice going forward. Without further ado, I now give you today's talk, Fundamental Wrongness to Unconditional Rightness. Okay, so for Dharma talk themes, um, really since the beginning of the year, I've been giving a, a long series of talks about a particular group of mental states or mental uh, experiences that uh, make our lives difficult, but also make meditative uh, experience quite difficult. And these are referred to as the hindrances, as many of you know. So if you're just joining, we're, we're really starting kind of with the difficult energies that uh, assail people whenever they uh, really try to settle down, look deeply into their experience, that these, these energies um, make that, make, can make that process very challenging and difficult, let alone our life challenging and difficult. So these, these, this list includes desire and addiction and craving and disliking and hatred and aversion and restlessness and anxiety and worry and fear and boredom and lethargy and sleepiness and sluggishness and apathy and confusion uh i don't repeat myself but confusion uncertainty doubt skepticism um just not knowing what to do. All of these states make, and they, they tend to arise in, in, in not just in isolation, but they tend to arise um, with, with multiple of their friends in tow. Um, they make our practice challenging. Now, in, um, in the early Buddhist tradition, which I've practiced the most in, again, I, I'm not here to make anyone a Buddhist. I just offer uh, Buddhist reflections on practice as a way to um, sort of to stimulate the conversation with you, with me and with you yourself around practice, um, but not to convert or make anyone a Buddhist per se. It's just a, it's a really uh, kind of pragmatic philosophy is the way I look at Buddhism. Buddhism is a pragmatic philosophy that can help us better understand um, the, the way that our minds uh, get into trouble and how we can uh, come to understand that and ultimately start to experience a greater peace and, and freedom within our life. Um, but these hindrances, the reason why they're, they're, they're really situated, uh, in the teaching particularly is that these, these hindrances, one way of looking at it is that they, you can consider them as the fixation points of self. They're sort of the habitual ways that one's self, one's sense of self gets hooked and then gets spun out or, 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 or gets into trouble gets 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 into stress gets into feeling stress um, uh, sort of that things aren't going well so um, in understanding these fixation points and, and actually making them explicit in our practice and calling them up and, and really looking into them and exploring them we I would say we we stand a better chance of, of actually unhooking ourselves from the fixation with them um letting them be and also and then thereby freeing ourselves from their their operational influence but i want to be clear the 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 whole emphasis of this path is not to jettison them not to get rid of these these difficult states but to just literally unhook ourselves from the ensnaring um demands and um kind of ways that they 
they, they, they contract us and tighten us up, constrict us. So uh, I was debating whether to say this, but I, I think it is relevant because I take, I see meditation as an experimental way or meditation as a laboratory to really get to know these energies more closely and to, to really uh, look at them straight in the face or right in the eye. Um, and, but the problem with uh, meditation is particularly uh, if you start to sit for a long time is that let's say you sit regularly for 20 minutes, the mind can get habituated to that period of time and kind of can, can almost uh, slip into a subtle cognitive form of anesthesia during that 20 minute period. You can kind of get used to the, the whole experience and get familiar with it to the point that, you know, you can handle 20 minutes and your mind settles down within that but you don't necessarily feel or experience the difficult energies as much um, because of that familiarity. And uh, for a long time, you know, my, my own personal practice has been roughly in the ballpark of 30 minutes every morning, 30 to 40 minutes uh, sometimes. But uh, recently, um, and I, and, and in, in practicing that way, I should say, you know, 20, 30 minutes for a long time, the my mind is, is does not get plagued by these hindrances the way it was in the beginning or the way it did in the beginning. You know, there's a there's a relative peacefulness uh, that sort of infuses most of my experience, and I even can be and I know you many of you have probably had this experience when you sit for a while you know for a long period of time, you can almost uh, know without the, hearing the the chime of your meditation timer go off, you can almost anticipate when that time is. You, know, you get an intuitive feeling for the 30-minute window when it's over, and you just know, oh, it's over, it's done. So um, there's a, a, a Zen teacher named Charlotte Joko Beck who uh, passed away a few years ago, but she, I, I never got to meet her, but her writing always inspired me. I, she had a really strong, clear voice around the Dharma. And um, one of the things that she recommended her students to do is that every now and then she suggested doubling the amount of time that you meditate to shake it up, to, to challenge yourself, to, to put yourself outside of your comfort zone, um, to, 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 to grow in a way, to, to create, to change up the conditions so that you're, you're not getting stuck or too habituated in a, in a pattern. So for me, uh, you can do the math, uh, doubling 30 minutes sitting becomes an hour, which um, really is a whole different kettle of fish <laughs> and it's it's nice and it's helpful as a as a facilitator here to to connect with the difficulties again so i can i can i can speak firsthand if you will for what it's like to face them and i just want to acknowledge that i am i have a renewed appreciation for just how difficult these damn energies are <laughs> you know when you know you can name it and you can be familiar with restlessness all you want but when you're in the throes of it it's really really uncomfortable it's not easy sitting through this and 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 what i've been finding too is that when i when i double the time i i have no bearing for where i am in that hour you know when i sit for 30 minutes i can be pretty clear oh there's about 10 minutes left i can I can I can stiff upper lip this and kind of get through it, muscle my way through it. But when you're in an, like a longer period of time, and if you can try this for yourself, I just lose my whole reference point for where I am in that hour. And I, in, in one way, that forces one to enter the timeless. You you, you get a, if like when you pick up the thought around time, it becomes so painful to kind of debate whether and wonder and, and, and anticipate or try to predict how much time is left, that, that whole process becomes so uncomfortable that you, the mind just sort of wants to put it, let it go and put it aside and, and just be done with time in a way. So that's all to say that, um, you know, the, the sitting in general, one of the functions of sitting that I'm going to try to make tonight is to reveal these energies as they are, as they play out, as they, as they function in our heart and mind. And it's through the, 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 the revelation of these energies through, through letting them and admitting them into our consciousness that we now have a foothold. We now have an opportunity to actually uh, transform uh, our relationship and understanding of them. So the way I thought I would, I would uh, speak about it tonight is to kind of review a little bit um, sort of the big picture in 
in early Buddhism, the way liberation is conceived, how way freedom and and um, the 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 final release of the heart is conceived. And the term that the the sort of the meta term, or the the overarching term that the Buddha used for any difficulty of experience, whether it's difficulty in the body, difficulty in the mind, difficulty interpersonally, different difficulty existentially, any the whole sort of kit and caboodle of of difficulty was 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 conveyed with this term dukkha and dukkha literally is the the bad hole of the axle on a carriage wheel or a cart so when there's a bad axle hole it just it produces or, or translates as a bumpy ride in life and the phrase that's been coming to me lately is that dukkha which is often translated as suffering unsatisfactoriness dissatisfaction or stress even. Um, Alan Watts's phrase is, is chronic frustration. Uh, the phrase I want to uh, offer up is the idea that dukkha is fundamental wrongness. <laughs> this, it's like when you are feeling your experience to be somehow fundamentally wrong, that there's just something not right with the way it is. Now that has multiple manifestations. Um, the big Three that I would identify uh, that become quite obvious in our practice is the the feeling of fundamental wrongness in the body. So when we sit still, there's often experience that the body reveals or or produces sensations that are uh, connected to feelings that just don't feel very good. So the the achiness in the hip, the numbness or um, uh, lack of feeling in the foot when the foot might go to sleep. Uh, tension between the shoulder blades or the neck or itches that are kind of irritating and annoying, like any sensation uh, stands the chance or holds the chance of being somewhat unpleasant and creating a feeling of of wrongness. And, And what it will reveal is the impulse that is programmed into us by natural selection, which I was talking about a few weeks back, but it will reveal the impulse to wriggle away from the unpleasant. So if you have ever encountered the, um, that, that crawling out of your skin experience when you meditate, that, that, that feeling like you just you feel trapped and pinned and cornered and you just want the bell to ring so that you can open your eyes and move your body and, and check off on, on your to-do list that you meditated the day, but just to leave it, away, leave, it, leave it where it is. If you've ever had that experience, you know what this experience of restlessness is and what you're experiencing is really one way of looking at it is you're experiencing millions of years of programming telling you to that that if you don't move, you're going to experience a threat that's that's potentially life-threatening. And, and as I tried to say a couple weeks ago, our, our threat detection mechanism is just hypersensitive. So a little bit of discomfort in the foot, and it, it mushrooms into... Am I gonna is is the foot gonna gonna go dead? Is it gonna is it is the feeling ever gonna come back? Will they have to amputate that foot <laughs> just because it went, you know you lost feeling with it for a few minutes in the meditation? <clears throat> so so this um, and of course this this fundamental wrongness not, isn't just attendant to the body. It shows up in the mind uh, all the time when we 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 just feel like we don't have enough of something, whether it's resources, whether it's uh, satisfaction with our life or, or uh, fulfillment in our career or uh, the interpersonal domain of like feeling satisfied and connected with a partner or not, like all the world of the mental, emotional experience can often produce this feeling of that something's not quite right. If we can just fill in this empty piece or this empty X, we can fill it in, get something, rearrange things, then we'll be feeling better and and um, at peace. And lastly, I just want to add that it, you know we can often find this sense of wrongness in our practice. It comes up very calm often in um, our appraisal our, of our of how we're doing in our practice, how we see ourselves in in, in terms of development, um, and it often just is manifest with the kind of statement or an inner voice that says, 
you're a bad meditator. You're not, your, your thinking isn't quiet enough. You're thinking about stupid things. Why are you planning this? Why are you having that same conversation over and over again? You know, all these things are, are, are interpreted by the unawakened mind as problems. And so usually when we experience this fundamental wrongness, there's a strong impulse in us to fix it and in a way be cured. And I'm specifically using that term because uh, recently I've been reading uh, some, some journals from the philosopher Ken Wilbur and uh, Ken's a very interesting guy, but uh, many, like about three decades ago, he um, met a woman who became his wife, but 10 days after they were married, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, they went through a long, arduous battle with this cancer. And uh, it was uh, kind of they, together they wrote a book, but uh, Ken wrote it posthumously um, after Treya, his wife, died. That's the spoiler alert. She didn't survive. The cancer took her. But he, in the book, they pair, they, they go back and forth where he writes one chapter and then the, the, the next chapter is from her journals. And, and so you, you hear both of their experience going through this, this whole process. But at some point, and I, I, I read this book about 20, 20, 20 plus years ago, um, at some point, they make the, the distinction between a cure and healing. And as I remember it, the cure, the way they define cure was the, the cure was sort of a resolution of symptoms, the symptom, resolution of the symptoms of an illness. The cure, sorry, the, the healing, in contrast to the cure, the healing was a sense of, of unified being of release, of freedom, independent of the symptoms. And what Treya found was that not all the time, a cure isn't always possible, but healing is always possible. We can always heal through the process of, of waking up to the way things are, which is what she had done. So I, I want to kind of present that dichotomy between a cure and, and, and healing um, as we really consider what are we doing, how are we, we, when we relate to the hindrances, which you could call the mental illness, the mental afflictions, not, not mental illness in the normal sense, but just like the, 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 the viruses of the mind that create a kind of inner sense of, of unwellness or dis, internal disease. A, a lot of times when people come to practice, this is the way it was for me in the beginning and probably the way it is for many of you. But when we start, there's often a sense that we have this problem in us and we'll practice in a way and the practice, the, the symptoms of the problem will just go away. The symptoms will go away. And what I want to sort of try to start to um, expand on here is the idea that whether the symptoms go away or not, healing freedom peace is still possible so whether or not we like we we ever get rid of the restless whether the restlessness goes away or not whether the the hatred in our heart goes away or not or the the sort of the, the strong craving for something goes away or not we can still wake up out of being defined by that experience and that, uh, to, at least in my, my sense of things, that's where the healing occurs. When we wake up out of the level of our being that identifies and is held by the implications of the difficult mind state, we wake up out of that, we wake up to a dimension of our being that is, is in a sense, healed because it's no longer separate or frightened or terrified by the statements within the small mind state of the hindrance. <clears throat> so, in one way of looking at it, practice, medit the meditative journey, is a movement along an axis from fundamental wrongness in the beginning, where the, 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 the conditions of our life don't feel like they're, 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 they're unfolding appropriately or the way we'd like. We move from that position of fundamental wrongness 
all the way to an experience of unconditional rightness. Even when, and that, that unconditional rightness includes the agitation, the neurosis, all the neurotic patterns of the mind that gets spun out by the hindrances. So I, I say this, and I'm going to say this again and again, because most people think progress in their practice indicates a disappearance of the hindrance, or the hindrances no longer arise. And now what, what I want to suggest is that these, these energies will still arise as, so long as we have a body and mind, but we can start to really dramatically shift our relationship to them through, through wisdom and understanding. And, um, and that is really, I think, very articulated by the Buddha in his, in his teachings. Now, there's a, um, a particular teaching that, that I think illustrates this in a very clear way, and I want to draw on that teaching tonight. This teaching is uh, technically referred to as the Dart Sutta. The dart, D-A-R-T. Sometimes you hear it as the arrow sutta, and sometimes you hear it as the two dart or the two arrow sutta. But I'll be referring to it as the dart sutta. And I'm going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version of it first, and then I want to read from the actual uh, uh, translation of the sutta uh, in, in one of these compilations I have. But the, but the, the, the Precy or the, 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 the Cliff Notes version is this. The Buddha asks um, his students that have gathered before him, he asks them, what is the difference between someone who has no practice, has no development of their mind and heart in meditation, and someone who has developed their heart and mind in meditation? What is the, what is the fundamental difference between these two categories of being? And so you're all now in the... In the moving into the first category, someone who's developed their mind and heart with, with meditative technology versus someone who has no encounter or exposure with, with, these, with this path or teachings. What's the difference between them? And uh, the, the audience says, well, uh, dear sir, why don't you answer? We, you, know, you, you seem to know what the answer is. Why don't you answer? So the Buddha takes, takes, sort of takes his rhetorical question and answers it himself. And the answer is, he says, the uninstructed person, the person who has not put into their put the the practice of the Dharma into their life, this person, it's as though they are struck in the leg by a dart. They get a dart shot in their leg. And that dart in their leg is meant to be a placeholder for all the unavoidable pains of existence the unavoidable pains of existence and these include aging illness decay separation from the loved ones association with a company we don't care for and death that's like the, the big way it's often described these are the unavoidable darts of life so from the get-go, what he, in the sutta, what he's saying is there is no cure for aging, illness, and death. That's not the level, that's not the level of illness or or disease or discontent that the Buddhist teaching is directed at. And I'm saying that because a lot of times people approach practice, whether it's meditation or yoga, with, with kind of a um, therapeutic mindset. Uh, I'll do this as long as my symptoms disappear or go or get better. And um, what I would borrowing on a, a kind of a statement that Sam Harris has made once or twice, um, even if the practice of meditation were injurious or um, harmful in some way to your body, say, or your mind. Uh, Sam makes the case that it's, it, and I, I tend to agree with him, there's something still intrinsically worthwhile about doing it. And he compares it to, um, to, to jujitsu, where, um, you know, you can, and I have not done jujitsu, so I can't comment firsthand, but I gather it can get pretty violent. <laughs> you can get banged up and, and, and injured in the practice of developing the martial art of, of jujitsu. 
But in that development, there's lots of skills and 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 understand you come about to about yourself that you would never get to if you didn't engage in that process. So I don't see meditation as causing harm, but the but the point is that uh, there's an opportunity in the meditation practice that lies outside of simply uh, sort of mitigating symptoms of discontent. This path goes to the root of it the very root of why our minds generate suffering. And so we all get shot in the leg by the first start. But the Buddha's point is, it's as though the, um, the uninstructed, what do you, in the sutta you'll hear they call it the uninstructed worldling, but the, the person who has not put the Dharma into the practice in their life, they don't understand the way things are. And it's as though their mind is shot by a second dart. So there's two darts. There's the dart in the in the leg, and then there's a second dart in the mind that is a self-generated, self-generated, self-directed dart at it at your own self. And that is that is the second dart is meant to be a placeholder for all the worry, the fear, the desire, the aversion, the resistance to the primary dart. The, the, the denial or the aversion to or the wishing away of the primary dart. And he says, the person who has trained themselves in meditation, they too get shot in the leg by that first dart. They, that will hit, that first dart will hit. But they do not get shot in the mind with a secondary dart. There aren't, or, and, and so this led, um, has led Ajahn Amro, uh, the wonderful English monk in, that I've worked with a bit, he'd say, in some ways, Practices is just dodging the second arrow, learning how to dodge the second arrow. And the way we learn to dodge the second arrow is by first becoming conscious of the fact that the second arrow process is happening. Um, I was going to read you the sutta, since I'm, I'm just looking at the time, I'm going to keep it, keep the sutta out for tonight. Um, but if you're interested, I can um, send that out to you. You can look it up yourself. Just type in the dart sutta and, and you'll, you'll find it on a search engine. Um, but this teaching was was poignantly brought home to me uh, during the time that I worked with the Burmese or Myanmar teacher Saida Upandita. Um, some of you know I worked with him, and he was uh, quite strict with me and and quite harsh for a while. Um, but after about three or four weeks, when the practice felt like it was settling in and 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 really taking root, he got a little bit more friendly with me. Um, but he never seemed to take tremendous personal interest in me. And one of the ways I, I developed that feeling when working with him was that when I would go into in, go into his little interview room where he would be in a chaise long and there would be an interpreter sitting on the floor next to him, and I would come in and bow down a few times and then report on what my meditation practice was like, um, he would he would lie back in the chaise long with a with a newspaper. And you know, he would more or less be looking like he was just perusing casually this newspaper while I was sweating bullets reporting to him about the, the intricacies of my meditation practice. And and I, I was I always wondered like how much is he really hearing? How much is the translator actually telling him? You know, I, I don't feel like the trans. I never for a while I didn't think the translator was doing a good job because I felt like my practice was going wonderfully. And every time the translator gave me my feedback feedback to me, he said. Saida, I was not happy with the state of your practice. You're not making any progress. You have to work harder, uh, try harder, try your best, but but please really dig in, basically. <laughs> and um, so I was always, you know, doubtful about what was what was really being communicated to Upandita vis-a-vis -vis the translator. Um, but on one day, um, I went in and I intentionally was a little mischievous in that I wanted to try to test Upandita to see if he was paying attention to me, which is an outrageous thing to try to do, actually. But um, basically, the way it went like this was like this. Um, when you would, in this system, when you go in to, to interview with a teacher and report on what your experience is like, you, you use a very uh, simple formula. You tell them what happened, how you noted it, and then what did you observe once you noted the experience? So you start out talking about your breath. You say, well, I noted, I observed the rising of my abdomen and I noted rising and I felt a sort of an expansion of tension in my belly. And then as the breath went out, 
as I observed the breath flowing out, I noted falling. That's how I noted it. And I experienced a decrease of tension. So it starts simple like that. But then when there's other objects that come up, other experiences, you're meant to report on how you handle that. So uh, on this particular occasion, I said, after noting the rise and fall of the abdomen for a period of time, I was aware of pain. I became aware of pain in my knee and I noted it as a version. And as soon, like I hadn't even finished the last syllable of the word aversion and the newspaper came flying down his 80 plus year old head swiveled around right at me and his like two blowtorch eyes bore into me. And he said, Yogi, look again, aversion, not in your knee. <laughs> so what he was trying to, this is, this is his way, I think, of speaking and speaking about this particular, the sutta. I was confused. I, well, I, I, was, I wasn't personally confused. I was trying to catch him to see if he was aware that I, like, I had misreported mis, mis, uh, on my experience or incorrectly, inaccurately reported on my experience. And he caught it immediately. When I said aversion was in my knee, he said, no, look again, aversion is in your mind. The, the resistance is not in the, in the first dart. The pain of resistance is in the second dart that hits the mind. So the reason this is liberating, and this and this 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 last bit will take a um, sort of takes time to appreciate. This is what I'm going to say now. Um, really, will be borne out in the direct maturation of your understanding of your experience in the course of your practice, it may not make any sense right now. I just wanna leave, like, leave, stay, say that for, for um, given that there's a variety of levels in the, in the, in the attendance of this, of this talk. But <clears throat> one of the ways of looking at the meditative process, which I was speaking about last week, and you can go back and hear that talk too, but the, the meditative process, we, it begins when we just sit down and, and commit to a, 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 a period of relative physical stillness. And when we commit to that stillness, one of the ways of describing what's going on is we are holding in check the, the, the big gross, and I mean by gross meaning obvious, but we hold in check the big gross manifestation of the hindrances meaning the actions that are um, that are initiated by these mind states. So normally when we're not sitting still, when we're not uh, like aligned with the principle of stillness for the for a practice, most of our time is just moving around in response to these energies. And as a result of always sort of feeding the call or answering the call of the hindrance, we take it for we, it sort of becomes the the air and or that or that we breathe or the water that we're swimming in. We 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 no longer even are aware of the context of what's going on. We become blind to it because of of over familiarity. So this is this is the rude awakening of sitting still, and it's a vital rude awakening. We sit still and suddenly we are now aware. We become poignantly, vividly aware of all the impulses to move. And we see that with a scratch, we see that with an unpleasant tingle, we see that with a tension in the neck, we see it myriad ways. And, and I know uh, there's a view that says, you know, if, you, if there's a move, there's a desire to move, you should, you should, you should fulfill that. Or you, there's nothing, there's no harm in moving. And I do agree, you, I don't want you to cause pain to the body. I don't need to cause harm, physical harm to the body. But part of the discernment on the path is learning to learn when sensation is okay to work with. This is kind of what we talk about in yin yoga. And when is sensation in indicating that we really do need to move. But at a certain point, and this is, you know, after you've practiced for a few weeks and you learn to find a posture that you can tolerate for the, the allotted period of time, 
it really is an interesting exercise to commit to not moving, to just be still. So that, again, and it's not, it's not, this is not a punitive kind of um, uh, martial <laughs> form of like body control, like keep your body rigid and still. That, that's not the intention. The intention is actually a gesture of compassion, if you think about it. We compassionately commit to physical stillness so that we can look and realize more clearly the impact that the hindrances have on how they operate in our being. So we can start really see the impact more forcefully. And the analogy for this that I, I've, I've really appreciated from um, Stephen Batchelor uses it, but I'll share use my own story from it, um, is, is that of a river. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, my friends and I, I, we, I grew up on a town near a river and um, we used to like to get uh, these, these inflatable boats, little rafts that we would put into the river and then go floating. We call that our floating time. We'd go float and look at the moon and be one with nature and things and talk and hang out. It's a great time. Um, but when I was on the raft or on the little boat and we're floating along, um, I had one sense of how strong the current was, but when it came time to get out of the raft, oftentimes I'd have to, you know, hop out and be up to my hips or up to my weight thighs in the water. When I got out of the raft and stood, you know, near the bank, but it's still in the river, when I was in the water, I could feel much more close, more clearly, the strength of the river, the current, the force of the current, because I was not flowing with it anymore. I was endeavoring to be to to stop, to put my foot, my feet on the on the river bed floor, stopping. And so when I stopped, that's when I really felt the strength of the current. And I think that's a, a really important uh, sort of an analogy for the kind of energies we experience when we when we first sit down. We feel the brunt or the momentum of really these hindrances in the sense of like just our personal desires, dislikes, uh, aspirations, the, all the, the forward movement of our life. We, we really experience that very directly when we come to physical stillness. So the physical stillness is a way to reveal the momentum, the unchecked momentum of these desires, these various desires. And then many instructions, many meditation instructions give us a place to put our attention. They tell, they, they, I use the word perch. Sometimes it's the word of an anchor is used, um, but it's some object in, in Burma, they refer to as a primary object of attention. We're told to give our, put our attention on one thing and bring it back to that one thing again and again and again. Now, uh, when people hear that, often they think the, the, the aim of the meditation is to keep their attention on the object of focus. Say it's the breath, for example. They think the idea of the practice is to keep the attention on the breath so that they, they, by being with the breath, they get away from all the other things that are they're bothering them. They get, you can get away from, get some psych, psychic distance, some headspace from worries, Plant anxieties, fears, etc. But I want to propose a different way of thinking about it. That we place, we, we use attentional stillness, meaning we put our attention on something that's relatively still. And I use the word attention specifically, it's sort of our narrow focused attention. We place our focused attention on something still so that we can see the uh, the torrent, the flowing torrent of the thoughts themselves that are sort of the, the cognitive expression of the feelings driving the hindrances. So when you see your mind desiring something, when you see your mind like wrestling with something, it's, you, you have a greater chance of seeing it because of the contrast against the gentle intention to keep your attention with something simple. It's like, it's like the, 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 the breath or the perch of your hands or the not a sound, whatever you're going to use, 
that simple object of experience becomes a reference point vis-a-vis which you start to experience the 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 kind of the obsessional flow of thoughts manifest by the hindrances and from my perspective that's essential it's only by seeing it honestly and becoming truthful about these programs again that have been largely baked into us by natural selection and then reinforced by sort of cultural trends but it's by seeing these energies both in terms of the impulses to move and kind of the the afflictive nature of of thoughts around these energies that we can then shift into not the stillness of attention and not the stillness of body we can start to experience the implicit stillness of awareness itself. So we often, I I say this because there is this perception out there. It's a very pernicious perception in meditation culture that good practice equals a, a, a quiet body that's very still with no squirming or no desire to squirm or itch. And the mind is sort of thought is like scrubbed and sanitized of unpleasant thoughts. And your attention is just resting on one thing. Neither of which are the path that I'm describing. The path I'm describing is we sit still so that we can really feel the gross manifestation of these hindrances. We come back to the perch over and over again so that we can come to understand the impersonal and somewhat out of control presentation of thoughts born out of these hindrances. And seeing that over and over again, the the impulses to move coming and going, the thoughts coming and going, the, the, the obsessive, uh, ruminative worry and anxiety and agitation. We see that over and over again. And in watching it, just watching it, we start to sense the stillness of the watching. And it's that, it's a fraction of a shift from trying to get the body to be still or getting the, the mind or thoughts to be still to feeling the intrinsic, already present stillness at the back wall of your own mind. And from there, once you you really kind of recognize that the, the, the still nature of awareness itself, that waking up to that seems to have a downstream effect on how we relate to all the manifestations of the hindrances. They're no longer seen as um, problematic things to be resolved. They're just seen as manifestations of sort of the, the yin and yang manifestations of our personality. And they, they become integrated from that position of awake awareness. And I'll, I'll, I'll probably, I, looking at the time, I'm going to have to say more about it later. But the point is, and I'm sort of giving some instructions here about the meditation, that tonight when we sit, I'm going to really encourage you to, for the period of time that we're practicing, try to, to not move even a slight muscle as a way to really open up and feel the various ways that the body experiences impulses to move born of the hindrances. And then you know, we continue within that process. You can work with any perch tonight, the breath, the hands, the sound or sounds in general, but not a sound too. You can work with any perch and, and just become aware of when you wake up off the perch, what kind of energy is active within your mind? Now, it's not always going to be a hindrance, but a lot of the times you'll probably see some manifestation, whether it's gross or subtle, of the hindrances at play in what you're thinking about. That's great. Just recognize, oh, this is this is this kind of desire. That's this, that's this kind of aversion. Or that's the, like this, this anxiety is like 
I'm really, it's like, that's not pleasant. I know he's been talking about it. It's not pleasant, but it's like this. So whatever you wake up to, just, just name it, whatever it is. It's like this. And then you can come back to your perch. I'm, I'm keeping the instructions kind of simple tonight, but come back to your perch just to, again, provide the internal reference point of comparison. So you can see that when the mind, what the mind is like when it's, when it's with something simple and then the, the habit tendency to get born into and spun out by the advertisements of, the, of, of these difficult mind states. Okay, that concludes today's talk. I hope again that I hope it, it supports your practice. I hope it uh, raises some questions and some points for exploration and ongoing development in your own uh, practice life. Once again, if you're able, if you're interested, if, you're, if you care, um, I really encourage and, and invite you to look at a way that you might support this podcast. You can do that again by either joining our Sangha to practice along with us four classes a week of meditation, yin yoga, qigong, and yang yoga. Or another way to support the podcast is just by subscribing to uh, my Letters from the Path series. These are one or two letters a month that, um, that explore reflections about the body, energy, psycho-emotional being, and mind. And I should mention that when you subscribe, you'll receive two free yin yoga practices that I produced along with a... Uh, 10, 10 email uh, series of essays where I explain the basic fundamental uh, elements of yin yoga. So that's all for free. And if, you, if you'd like to, please join me on Letters from the Path. There's information about all of this in the show notes. So go on and check that out. And please consider sharing this with anyone that you know that is like-minded and might also appreciate the content here. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I wish you all the best in your practice, your life. Stay healthy, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon.